0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 47 of NBA Unwrapped. I'm Corbin Weinerman, and I have some good news and some bad news for you guys. Good news is there's a lot of stuff that's been going on around the NBA, a lot of topics to talk about, some topics I really want to get into and discuss. Bad news is Christian and Perry aren't here to discuss them with me. Well, at least we hope it's bad news, depending on how you feel about them. But regardless, you're stuck with me for this podcast, so I'm going to try to make it as interesting and fun as possible, but Before I get into everything, I just want to remind you all to go ahead and follow us on Twitter at NBA Unwrapped. You can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Unwrapped, and even though they aren't here, I'll still give them a shout-out. Go ahead and follow Perry on Twitter at Perry Aston, Christian on Twitter at McGowan75. Also make sure to listen to us either on podcast.com, on the Apple iTunes Podcast Network, or through the Pulse Podcast Network. They have their own app that you can go ahead and check out. If you're on the Apple iTunes Podcast app, please go ahead and give us a Five star review. We'd really appreciate that. Also, we have our own website, unwrappedsports.com. If you haven't checked it out, go ahead and check that out. I'm doing most of the editing for most of the articles. We have a lot of really good writers that come in and give us some really good content. We got a few articles coming up every day right now. And if you're interested in writing for us, go ahead and either direct message me, Perry, Christian, or any of our Unwrapped Podcast Twitter pages, and we'll be sure to get back to you. And hope to have you on the team. Now, before I get into everything, and again, a lot of stuff to discuss, I want to end this podcast having kind of a Lakers-centric discussion about who's to blame for everything that's gone wrong throughout the season. But before I get into all of that, I just want to have a brief little message from one of our sponsors. Have you been searching for the best ticket deals around? Well, look no further. With TixBlix, the price you see is the price you pay, and TixBlix just happens to have over $6 billion in ticket inventory just waiting for you. They absolutely mean it when they say, every ticket, every venue, everywhere. And you can save even more with promo code PULSE in all caps to save you 5% off your total purchase. Just go to TixBlix.com and click the search bar. Search events based on your geographic location, pick the show you want, and BAM! It's showtime! sporting events, Broadway shows, concerts, and more with TixBlix.com. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the email newsletter so you can stay up to date on the latest news and savings with TixBlix. That's TixBlix.com, T-I-X-B-L-I-T-Z.com. Every ticket, every venue, everywhere. All right, so let's just get right into everything that's been going on. Earlier tonight, i recording this on Monday night, Earlier tonight, Russell Westbrook got into an altercation with one of the Utah Jazz fans. The Thunder ended up winning this game, but while Westbrook was on the bench during the game, one of the Utah Jazz fans reportedly yelled at Russell Westbrook, something along the lines of, get down on your knees like you're used to, which, very disrespectful towards Russell Westbrook. Westbrook retaliated by, and this was caught on camera, Russell Westbrook saying to the Jazz fan and his wife, quote, I will F you up. I will F you up and your wife up. That is not a good look for Russell Westbrook. I know that the fan was completely out of line saying what he said, but Russell Westbrook has to know that everything that he does is being watched. That Jazz fan is going to go home Nobody's going to know who he was. They're going to know some Jazz fans said something to Russell Westbrook, but they're not going to know know who it was. Russell Westbrook, they saw this happen. Everyone saw what he said. Heard it. It was recorded. Everyone can see the video. Just last year in the playoffs against the Utah Jazz, Russell Westbrook, as he was exiting for the locker room, yelled at a fan and attempted to knock the cell phone out of a different fan's hands. And I believe that came either during or after the Game 6 loss at the Utah Jazz, which knocked the Thunder out of the playoffs. I get that obviously fans should never be disrespectful towards players. It's one thing to root for your own team and to root against a different team and boo them. But when you start saying personal, hurtful sayings like what this Jazz fan said to Russell Westbrook, it shouldn't be tolerated. And that fan was supposedly warned and told that if he kept it up, he was going to get kicked out of the game. He should have been kicked out of the game immediately. But regardless, Russell Westbrook, what does that fan matter to him? Russell Westbrook, what does that fan matter to you? It shouldn't matter at all what that fan is saying. I understand it's very disrespectful, but at the end of the day, you're a basketball player. You're there to compete there's going to be other fans that are going to say stuff to you that are going to get you riled up. And now with the reaction that you gave to this Jazz fan for what he said, that's only going to put a bigger target on you moving forward, not just when you play the Utah Jazz in Utah because apparently you like to get into it with fans there, but whenever you go anywhere. Even in Oklahoma City, there's going to be fans of other teams there. You don't think that they're going to be going after you now, hoping that they get under your skin just a little bit. I just think Russell Westbrook, as a member of the NBA, as a player for the NBA, you need to be bigger than that and just realize that anything anyone says in the fans, it doesn't matter. And if it's really bugging you, don't retaliate, don't say anything to them. Just go to someone on the Thunder security staff, tell them what's going on, and they will handle the issue. They will make sure that that fan is dealt with the way that they should be, not being told how you Russell Westbrook are going to f them up and f their wife up. Russell Westbrook said in a post game interview that the fans wife was also talking trash to Russell Westbrook as well. I don't I don't want to hear it. I don't want to whatever the excuses I don't want to hear it. You were threatening to assault a woman and that's the bottom line. I don't care what she said to you. You threatened to assault her, and you said after the game and the post-game press conference or back in the locker room that you would never physically assault a woman, and you never had any domestic violence charges against you, which is true, and that you would never do such a thing. And I hope that that is the truth, and other than what you said tonight, there's nothing for me to think that you would ever harm a woman, but regardless, just you saying that puts you into such a bad light, and Russell Westbrook... He is one of my favorite players to watch in the NBA. I love how competitive he is every single day, every time he takes the floor. He is the most competitive player on the floor, regardless of who he's playing. One of the greatest work ethics in NBA history. But this sort of stuff, which has happened before, needs to stop. Do not continue to get into it with fans. It's not worth it. It paints a bad picture for you. And like I said, it just puts a bigger bullseye on your back for fans of other teams moving forward, hoping that they will be able to get a reaction out of you that's going to get under your skin and make it harder for you to compete at the level that you should be competing night in and night out. Let's move on to Lou Williams. Lou Williams passed Del Curry tonight in the Clippers game against the Celtics for the most career points ever off the bench with 11,148. Jamal Crawford, who is on the Phoenix Suns, is currently in third. He's a few hundred points behind. He should pass Del Curry, I would think. Maybe. I don't know. A few hundred points with 15 games left? Maybe not. But regardless, Jamal Curry and Lou Williams, when I think of the best bench players, six men of all time, those are the two that really stand out to me. And Lou Williams, what he's been able to do with the Clippers has been extremely impressive. Last year and this year have probably been his two best years as an NBA player, and they both come off the bench. Last year, he was averaging, I think, around 22, 23 points a game. For the Clippers, he almost got all-star consideration. This year, he's helping lead the Clippers, even if he isn't starting for them. He's helping lead them to, right now, they're in the 7th seed in the West. They're really close to the 6th seed. I think a game back, if even that, of the 6th seed, they're firmly in the playoff picture and no one expected them to be in the playoff picture, but Lou Williams and everyone on the Clippers roster and the coaching staff, Doc Rivers' coaching staff, needs a lot of credit as well. But they all deserve a lot of credit for everything they've been able to do, but Lou Williams has really been the catalyst, at least of the offense. Defensively, he doesn't do much, but offensively, he's a spark plug. He's a streaky shooter, usually shoots around 40% from the field, but... If he gets hot, it's pretty tough to stop him. So congratulations to Lou Williams for becoming the all-time leading scorer off the bench. He deserves it. He's, if not the best bench player of all time, then I would say top two right there with Jamal Crawford. Let's move on to the Toronto Raptors and the Cleveland Cavaliers who played today. The Cavaliers dismantled the Raptors in Cleveland, won by, I think the final score was 120, 126 to 101. But that wasn't the main story of the game. Main story of the game was at the end of the third quarter, Serge Ibaka was getting in position against Marquise Chris for an inbounds pass from the other side of the court. Ball was launched across the court. It was a second left. Serge Ibaka was trying to get off a quick shot, and he kind of got tangled up with Marquise Chris. Serge Ibaka fell to the floor. It looked like Marquise Chris might have said something to Ibaka once Ibaka went down. Ibaka got up as Marquise Chris was turning his back to Ibaka, and Ibaka grabbed Marquise Chris by the throat for a second. He then let go, grabbed Chris again, shoved him into the basket stanchion, and proceeded to throw a punch at him. Ibaka and Marquise Chris both got ejected for their actions in the game. Marquise Chris has been ejected from an NBA basketball game now three times. Serge Ibaka has eight times. ESPN was talking about how because Serge Ibaka is a repeat offender for getting into these altercations, he's been in a few before, that he is looking at a possible three to five game suspension going forward. I'd have to think Marquise Chris isn't going to get a suspension. He didn't really do too much, at least physically. He might have provoked Serge Ibaka, but it's one thing to say something. It's another thing to do something. I was Told all the time growing up, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, and that kind of applies to Russell Westbrook as well, but yeah, Serge Ibaka, I think he's got to be suspended at least for a few games, even if he wasn't a repeat offender. uh, Grabbing another NBA player by the neck, that's got to be an automatic suspension, multi-game suspension, and then throwing the punch, you got to add a few more on top, so I'd think three to five game suspension at the minimum. It could be more. It wouldn't surprise me. But as exciting as fights are sometimes in the NBA, it's not good to see. It's just not a good look. You don't want to see any NBA player get injured because of a fight. There's already so many ways that you can get injured playing any sport, especially basketball. You don't need another way for players to get injured. So I wanted to bring this up and just say that I really hope moving forward, the NBA continues to have strict rules and punishments for any NBA players who do get into fights. I want to move on to James Dolan and the New York Knicks. So, James Dolan is the owner of the New York Knicks, for anyone who doesn't know. James Dolan recently had a fan detained at Madison Square Garden during a New York Knicks game because the fan yelled at James Dolan that he should sell the team. That prompted James Dolan to have that fan detained. We're unsure if that fan has been banned from coming to any more New York Knicks games. But regardless, having a fan detained just because they yell their opinion at an owner is ridiculous. A Madison Square Garden employee issued a statement on the whole issue saying, quote, Our policy is and will continue to be that if you are disrespectful to anyone in our venues, we will ask you not to return. I'm sorry, what is so disrespectful about telling an NBA owner who really should sell the team that they should sell the team? James Dolan has been, if not the worst owner in the NBA, one of the two or three worst owners in the NBA. And the more that I think about it, I think it's pretty clear he has been the worst owner. When you consider everything that has gone around his ownership with the New York Knicks, players don't like him. Fans don't like him. The Knicks are playing in the largest market, not just in America, but in the world. And you have made them a laughing stock in the NBA for the better part of three decades. It's unacceptable. James Dolan should not be getting so offended because a fan is saying something as innocent as, you need to sell the team. That fan is probably incredibly frustrated because... They've been watching the New York Knicks for years, and the Knicks have done absolutely nothing. Furthest they've gone is the Eastern Conference semifinals when they had Carmelo Anthony. Carmelo Anthony and Amari Stoudemire, to a lesser degree, are really the two players that, the only two players that you can really say were at one point in their Knicks tenure superstar status. Amari Stoudemire was his first year after he signed from the Phoenix Suns in the 2010 offseason. So I know it's kind of hard to picture him as a superstar, but there was a time in his first season where he was still at superstar level. Carmelo Anthony, for a few years in New York, yeah, he was absolutely a bona fide superstar. They had another superstar, or at least superstar in waiting in Chris Saps Porzingis, but they decided to trade him for a cap relief for the hope and chance to try to sign two max-level free agents this offseason when no... Max level free agent has signed there in, I can't even remember the last time. It's been a very long time. And this, what's been going on with James Dolan, what he just did, that's not showing that this is a stable organization. That's not showing that this is an organization where if you're a max level player like Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving, that you would want to go play here. I don't care how big of a market you're in in New York. You still need to be with a franchise that functions the right way and knows how to handle the organization and handle themselves. And if the man at the top, the owner, James Dolan, doesn't know how to handle himself, how can you have any faith in the rest of the organization? I, I didn't see Kyrie Irving or Kevin Durant coming to New York, I don't think, before this happened. But this does not help the Knicks in any way. And it's just disappointing to see... James Dolan be able to treat any fan like that? No fan should be treated that way when they pay using their hard-earned money to come to a game, especially for a game for a team that has just been awful this entire year and is not doing anything to try to make themselves better this year. No fan should be treated like that, and James Dolan, there's been talk on first take, Max Kellerman was talking about how the NBA should try to force him to sell because of this. I don't think the NBA is going to be able to force him to sell, but the NBA would be a lot better off if they could find someone to take James Dolan's place as the owner of the New York Knicks, and I'll leave it at that. Let's move on to the team that James Dolan traded his superstar and waiting Chris Epps Porzingis to, the Dallas Mavericks. So the Dallas Mavericks are going to have enough cap space to sign a player to a max deal this offseason. It's rumored that they're going to be targeting Kemba Walker in free agency. I don't really like that potential signing. I think that if Kemba Walker were to end up on the Dallas Mavericks, yes, while Kemba Walker is a very good player and and an all-star player, although if he went to the Western Conference, I don't think he'd be making the all-star team. He's a very good player, but pairing him with Luka Doncic and Chris Saps Porzingis, mainly focusing on Luka Doncic, I think it's a terrible fit. It is a terrible fit. Luka Doncic is very special, and he's going to continue to be very special for at least the next 10 years, barring any catastrophic injury. But Luka Doncic is incredibly special with the ball in his hands. Kemba Walker needs the ball in his hands as well. He's a good shooter. He can spot up and shoot, but What makes him so special is his ability to create off the dribble for himself. And to a lesser degree for others, I would say Luka Doncic is clearly a better playmaker for others than Kemba Walker. But look, Kemba Walker is a top top 10 point guard for sure. I wouldn't say top 5 point guard in the NBA. But there are so many great point guards in the NBA, he still probably does deserve a max contract. It's just, with the Dallas Mavericks, I don't see it working out. I think that the Mavericks would be a lot better off, even if they can't attract any other max-level free agent besides Kemba Walker, just go out and add some depth to your roster. You already have Luka Doncic and Chris Saps Porzingis. That's going to be, as long as Porzingis comes back from his torn ACL healthy, that's going to be one of the better one-two punches in the NBA, not just next year, but for the next 10 years going forward, as long as they both stay with the Mavericks. Luka Doncic is putting up numbers right now that, We've only seen out of rookies at his same age from LeBron James, and he's only going to continue to progress, continue to get better, just like LeBron James did. I'm not saying by any stretch Luka Doncic will be as good of an NBA player as LeBron James, but he is a very good player and someone who I think relatively soon will be a top 10 player in the NBA. And to bring on someone like Kemba Walker, who needs the ball in his hands in order to be as effective as he can be, I just think it's doing a disservice to Luka Doncic. Yes, you probably still make your team better somewhat as a whole and you can work out the lineups to where if Doncic and Kemba Walker are both playing 36 minutes a game, you only have them playing with each other for 24 minutes a game. But that's still half of an NBA contest, and it's going to be a balancing act trying to figure out who's going to be handling the ball in which situations. So for that reason, the Mavericks are much better off just holding off on Kemba Walker, maybe looking for some other max-level player to come to Dallas. You never know who might be interested, especially with how good Luka Doncic has looked. But if you can't attract any max-level free agents, that's okay. You have a really good nucleus in Chris Saps, Porzingis, and Luka Doncic. Just fill out the rest of your team around them with players that make sense. Get a point guard who can play defense and doesn't necessarily need the ball in his hands. Luka Doncic can handle the ball on offense. Get a point guard who can shoot, space the floor, open the floor up for Luka Doncic. You have Chris Saps, Porzingis, who can space the floor as well. You have a combo that should work really well together. Just... Get a lineup that can work well around them. That's the most important thing, not just attracting star star power. Let's move on to the Boston Celtics. So Jalen Brown, Boston Celtics forward, says that the Celtics team atmosphere is, quote, toxic. Celtics are currently battling for, realistically, they have a chance to end up as the three-seed in the East. The Raptors and Bucks are both, About five and a half, six games ahead of the Celtics, Pacers, and 76ers who are all battling for the three seed. So with about 15, 16 games left, it's going to be hard to catch them. But the Sixers and Pacers are tied for the three seed. They're a game and a half above the Boston Celtics right now. It's just been an odd year for the Celtics. They came into this season having so many expectations. I was one of the many people who thought that they were the clear favorites to come out of the East. I still would argue, talent-wise, there is not another, well, I'll take that back. The Sixers, talent-wise, I think are right there with them after the additions of Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris this season, but coming into the season, there was no team with anywhere near as much talent as the Boston Celtics, and I think that's kind of worked to their detriment, in a sense, because... They have so many players. They're so deep, and they have so many players that could take on a much larger role than they do. But they try to make it work. Brad Stevens is trying to make it work for them. Last year, they had injury issues with Gordon Hayward going down, obviously, to start the year. Kyrie Irving was injured throughout the season and ended up missing the playoffs. And that allowed their young players to really shine and show what they were capable of. Now, going into this year, everyone was healthy. Gordon Hayward is still trying to work his way back from his horrible leg injury that he suffered at the beginning of last season, and he's looking more and more like himself with each game, but he's still clearly not back to 100%. That's been kind of a struggle for him, and just him being able to adapt to coming off of the bench, something he has never done before this year in his NBA career. Kyrie Irving trying to figure out how he can lead the Boston Celtics, and how he can lead them to victories. That's something that he's been very vocal about, his frustration with the team and how he just feels like they aren't meshing the way that they should and his frustration with just how do I get them to all work together as a unit with me and how do I fit into this whole puzzle piece because last year without me, they played really well. They took the Cavs with LeBron James to Game 7 in the NBA Finals or Eastern Conference Finals. And now this year, with even more talent, with Kyrie Irving and Gordon Hayward back, they're struggling. And there was a quote that Marcus Morris, the Celtics' starting power forward, had after, I forgot who it was the Celtics lost to, but they had just rattled off 10 wins in a row. They lost one game, and Marcus Morris, after the game, said something along the lines of, it's just not fun, we're just not having fun right now. That's a pretty alarming quote. You would think that if you've just won 10 games in a row, even if you did lose a game, you're still having fun. You're enjoying yourselves. Winning is supposed to be the thing that cures all. Winning in the Celtics case, though, it seems like it's not curing all. They had a really good win against the Golden State Warriors, and I'm going to get into the Warriors and if they should be concerned at all in a minute, but... They follow that up with a win against the Kings, which is another impressive win in Sacramento. But it just seems like, for whatever reason, they're not meshing the way that they should. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, as strange as it might sound, they just have too much talent. And they can't figure out how to utilize that talent in ways where everyone stays happy, but it's also for the betterment of the team. And that's going to be the real issue going into the playoffs. Celtics, again, only a game and a half back of the three spot. It's really important to get at least the four seed because then you get home court advantage throughout the first round of the playoffs. If you can get the three seed, then you got an easier first round matchup because there's really five teams in the East. I'd argue four because the Pacers lost their superstar, not superstar, but their best player, and I'll at least give them star status in Victor Oladipo to a knee injury. But they're still hanging right there. They're still right with the Sixers. They're ahead of the Celtics. So they're still a good team. It's important to get to that three spot because then you face the sixth best team in the Eastern Conference in the first round of the playoffs. Much better matchup than having a 4-5 or five matchup, whether it be against the 76ers or the Pacers. That three seed is really important, and... Celtics only game and a half back, so they still have time to figure it out and get to that three seed, but it's going to take some work from everyone within that organization. Brad Stevens as well. He's a really good coach, but he's been under the microscope a little bit more this year than anyone expected. He had a great season last year, but this year, just uh, it's just a combination of everything. I don't want to blame it on Brad Stevens. I don't want to blame it on any individual player, but just collectively they need to figure themselves out. Let's move on to the Warriors. So I mentioned that the Celtics beat the Warriors. Very impressive win for the Celtics recently. Warriors just lost on Sunday night at home to the Phoenix Suns as a 17-point favorite. This was the second time in the last 20 years that a team had lost after being that big of a favorite. The other time was the Warriors a few years ago when they lost to the Lakers and I know people are going to point out, oh, well, something must be wrong with the Warriors then if they're the only team that's lost when they've been that big of a favorite. But think about it for a second. How many teams have actually been that big of a favorite? You need to be a historically good team like the Warriors and then play a really bad team. How many historically good teams are there in any given year? Maybe one. And for the last five years, it's been the Warriors. So the fact that they're the only team that's lost after being a 17-point favorite and that they've done it twice in the last 20 years, that's not concerning to me. What is concerning to me is when you factor in the fact that, yes, they lost to the Suns at home, Suns being the worst team in the Western Conference, but before that, they had that 33-point loss to the Celtics at home earlier this month, In February, they lost by 22 points at the Portland Trailblazers. On Christmas Day, they lost by 26 points at home to the Lakers. That was when LeBron James strained his groin in the middle of it. Warriors cut it down to, I believe they got it to within two points. And then the Lakers, without LeBron James, were able to open it back up to a huge, huge deficit for the Warriors and ended up winning by 26 points. Two weeks before that Christmas Day loss, they lost by 20 points at home to the Raptors without Kawhi Leonard. In November, they lost by 28 points at home again to the Oklahoma City Thunder. Six days before that, they lost by 21 points in Houston. And one week before that, they lost at home by 23 points to the Milwaukee Bucks. It's incredible to think about all of these blowout losses that they have had. And except for the game in Houston and the game in Portland, all of these blowouts have been on their home court. I don't remember any blowouts. I think the Warriors had one or two 25-plus point losses in all of the other, what, four years that Steve Kerr has been the head coach before this year. And just this year alone, they have, how many did I say? One, two, three, four, five, six seven 20-point or more losses, five of them coming at home. And then they just lost to the Suns at home as a 17-point favorite. The Suns loss I'm not too concerned about. Even the best teams have an off game, even if it does come against the worst team in their conference. But the fact that they've had so many of these blowout losses, it's almost becoming like a trend for them. And yes, you could chalk it up to, well, they're bored. They've been to four straight NBA Finals. They're bored. It's the regular season. Clay Thompson even had a quote after the game. He was kind of blaming the loss on the fans, saying, well, the fans need to get into it too. It's hard for us to compete and get up and get ready for every game when we're just looking forward to the playoffs. The fact that a player even admitted, like, we're just looking towards the playoffs we don't care about right now, even if that's what you think, it just it talks to... It talks the Warriors' mindset for sure and how they know that they are the best team in the NBA. They don't have any concerns about any team in the NBA overtaking them and beating them in a seven-game series, but should they? I think they're lucky that the Western Conference, unlike last year where the Rockets were clearly the second-best team, it was the Warriors are the best team in the West, Rockets are the second-best, and then there's... Six different teams in the playoffs all battling for who's the third best team in the West. But this year, the Nuggets are, what, a game, two games behind the Warriors right now? I don't see the Nuggets as a legitimate threat to the Warriors. The reason why the Nuggets have put together the record that they have this year, and it's very impressive, but the Nuggets are by far the deepest team in the NBA. And in the regular season, when you go through a grueling 82-game season and there are injuries that come up along the way, when you have the sort of depth that the Nuggets do, Nuggets have had a lot of injuries as well this year, but they've had players at every position that can just come in and not necessarily completely fill the void left by whoever was playing in front of the player that they're now playing, but there's not so much of a drop-off where... They lose so much that, okay, now they're going to go into a tailspin for at least a few games and go on a five-game losing streak or anything like that. The Nuggets are very consistent, and you got to give their head coach, Mike Malone, a lot of credit for what he's been able to do with them too. Going from last season where they lost in overtime on the last day of the regular season to the Timberwolves where it was the winner goes to the playoffs, loser goes home, to now this year where they firmly do deserve to be in the playoffs, and yeah, you can talk about them as a team that maybe is the second best in the West, but I just don't see it that way. I think when the playoffs start, you need to have star power, and yes, the Nuggets have Nikola Jokic, who is a really good player. You could argue, I guess you could make an argument for top 10. You could convince me, I'd I'd say top 15 for sure, top 10. I don't know about that. But even still, Nikola Jokic is a center, and in today's NBA, center is probably, it is the least important position to have in the NBA. You need great guard play. You need at least one guard or a small forward who can just play on the wing and play outside, who can do everything for you. And the Nuggets, like I said, they have a lot of depth. They have a lot of very good wing players and guard players, but They don't have that one player outside of Nikola Jokic where you can just give him the ball and expect him to be able to create for himself and create for others like a lot of other teams do. Rockets have James Harden and Chris Paul. Warriors, obviously, have Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. Draymond Green can create for others. Klay Thompson can create for himself. Obviously, he's one of the most lethal shooters in the NBA, the only one who you could argue is better than him would probably be his teammate Stephen Curry. You got the Portland Trailblazers with Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum. You got even the Spurs to a lesser degree who are right now the eight seed in the West. They got DeMar DeRozan on the outside who can create for himself and not a great playmaker, but he can still create for others. You need a player like that. Ideally, you would want someone better than DeMar DeRozan as your best wing player, even though DeRozan's a really good wing player, but I don't see the Nuggets being able to challenge the Warriors. I do think, though, that these seven blowout losses this year is something to be concerned about. Since DeMarcus Cousins came back from his Achilles injury, when he first came back, he looked really good, but he was also fouling a lot and not playing too much. Since he's been able to play a little bit more, you've been able to see, yes, he looks a lot better than I thought he would. I'm the first person whenever anyone goes down with an Achilles injury. I remind Perry and Christian that's the worst injury to have in sports. To me, I think it's not a career ender, but it's pretty close. It makes you that much worse of a player, whether it's NBA, NFL, any sport. And DeMarcus Cousins, while he does look better than I expected he would this soon coming out from his Achilles injury, defensively he has never been a good defender, and this year he has looked even worse. And that's what you saw the Celtics be able to do against the Warriors, is just exploit DeMarcus Cousins in the pick and roll, force him to play defense, which he never really could before, but now he certainly cannot. And that's something that teams are going to continue to try to expose the Warriors using. Draymond Green had a quote after, I believe it was after the Suns game on Sunday, where he said, it's not just DeMarcus Cousins' fault, we all suck on defense. And some of that's true, the Warriors haven't been as engaged defensively as they have in seasons past, but again, you can chalk part of that up to boredom. Once the playoffs start, they're going to lock in. You're going to see a much more scarier Warriors team than you've seen lately, And they definitely have that potential. You look back, the month of January, they lost two games that entire month. That's ridiculous. The Warriors have that potential to play that well, like we know. And with the Marcus Cousins, offensively, obviously, they're even scarier. Defensively, though, yeah, there are some cracks in the armor. I don't realistically think that any team can defeat the Warriors in a seven-game series. But it is fun just for once in a long time to see the Warriors start to show some signs of struggles and just not being a completely cohesive unit. There was a video camera, one of the broadcast cameras when the Warriors were playing the Suns on Sunday night who caught Steve Kerr in the fourth quarter mouthing to Mike Brown, the lead assistant coach, saying, quote, I'm so effing tired of Draymond's S-H-I-T, and that's telling. Uh, Draymond Green is obviously a huge personality, and he's someone who rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Steve Kerr and Draymond Green have gotten into it before, but you just get the sense that their dynasty might finally be starting to, it is starting to show some cracks, and it might finally be starting to come to an end. As a fan of just competitive basketball and liking being able to not just be able to predict what team is going to win the NBA championship before the season starts, I'm happy. I, I hope Kevin Durant leaves the Warriors or Clay Thompson does or Draymond Green just screws up the whole thing for all of them with his personality I just want to see competitive basketball, and right now, with the Warriors being clearly just head and shoulders above everyone else, I just don't think that there is competitive basketball across the NBA. I just We're just waiting to see who's going to play the Warriors in the finals, and we know the Warriors are going to win the finals. I'm fine with that. I've accepted that. I accepted it before the season started, but after this year, please, please, NBA gods, break up the Warriors some way, somehow. And allow us to get back to being able to have fun discussions about who do you think is going to win the NBA title this year without knowing it's the Warriors. Okay, now I want to have a brief discussion about the MVP award and who I think is going to win it this season. So we've had discussions in the past just a few podcasts ago. We talked about how Paul George, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and James Harden were the three clear frontrunners for the award. I believe I had James Harden as the MVP, Perry had Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Christian had Paul George. I've come around to Giannis being the MVP, I think. James Harden has started to slow down, and he's had an incredible season, one of the most impressive individual performances for an entire season, at least up until now, that we've seen in a long, long time. But... He slowed down a little bit. What Giannis has been able to do with the Bucks and getting them to the one seed, when you look at that team, yeah, there's definitely some talent there. But Giannis has just been unbelievable. He has the, I believe he has 25 games this year of at least 25 points, 10 rebounds, and 5 assists. It's the third most in NBA history behind Russell Westbrook had 43 one year and LeBron James had 26 one year, but there's still 15, 16 games yet left. So Giannis will definitely surpass LeBron James. He's not going to catch Russell Westbrook, but it's just incredible what he's able to do. We talked about on a podcast a few episodes ago how Paul George could win MVP and Defensive Player of the Year award. Paul George has slowed down he had a injury, and since he's come back, he just hasn't been. The St. Paul George that he was pre-injury this year, but Giannis is right there for MVP and Defensive Player of the Year too. I I feel more confident saying that he will be the MVP than Defensive Player of the Year. But Giannis is a six foot eleven freak. Six foot eleven. I don't know how long his wingspan is, but you look at what he looked like coming into the NBA when he was just skin and bones basically, but still very athletic and had a lot of potential, but was incredibly raw. He has completely polished his game to where he can do just about everything except shoot a jumper, especially a three-point shot, even though that's been getting better. And if he is able to get even an average three-point jump shot, oh my God, how do you stop that? He leads the league and I believe he has 18 times this year he has grabbed a defensive rebound, gone coast to coast, and dunked it without passing it to anyone. I believe LeBron James is second in the NBA with six, and then Brandon Ingram has four. Giannis has 18 of them, 12 ahead of anyone else. It's unbelievable. His combination of quickness, his dribbling ability, his ability to facilitate for others, I think that's something that goes largely underappreciated with Giannis just because he's able to do so much other stuff so well. He's one of the top field goal percentage people in the NBA. Yes, free throw percentage and three-point percentage he needs to work on, but he, just everything else. He does everything else so well and being able to lead that Bucks roster, which is a good roster but probably shouldn't be the one seed in the East. The Raptors top to bottom have a better roster. The Celtics top to bottom have a better roster. The Philadelphia 76ers top to bottom have a better roster. And yet the Bucks are still the number one seed, not just in the East, but in the NBA. And Giannis has been incredible this entire year. I am thoroughly impressed with everything that he has been able to do offensively and defensively. The Bucks played the Lakers, I believe it was... Two weekends ago in Los Angeles. It's a close game. The Bucks came out on top. But Giannis, on top of doing everything for the Bucs offensively, he also guarded LeBron James. And LeBron James, for his size, is maybe the largest player in NBA history for a wing at his size. Giannis LeBron tried backing him down. I remember two times when LeBron tried to back Giannis down. And both times, he could not get Giannis to budge, and LeBron had to shoot a fadeaway jumper. He missed both, because as soon as he went to the fadeaway, Giannis and his freakishly long wingspan contested the shot, and nothing could happen. I think Giannis has separated himself from James Harden and Paul George, and he is the clear favorite now to win the MVP award, and he should win it. He deserves it. Alright, so for the rest of this podcast, I want to talk pretty much exclusively about the Lakers. First, I want to just talk about some news and injury updates going on with the Lakers, and then I want to end this podcast discussing who's at fault at most for everything that's been going on with the Lakers and all of their struggles. So let's start on a good note. Lakers signed Andre Ingram to a 10-day contract. Andre Ingram, you might remember, got called up from the Lakers' G League affiliate Last season, for the last three or four games of the NBA season, he had a 19-point game against the Houston Rockets. He is the G League all-time leader in three-point field goals made. I believe he has the highest three-point percentage of any G League player ever either. Andre Ingram is 33, 34 years old. He's not someone who's going to have a long career in the NBA, but... It's nice to just see him be rewarded. The Lakers did this last year after it was very clear they weren't going to make the playoffs. They're doing it again this year. As disappointing as it is for them not to be in the playoffs, at least there's a minor bright side in being able to see Andre Ingram get called up. There was a video that the Lakers released showing Andre Ingram's reaction when he heard that he was getting called up to play with the Lakers. It's a great video. If you guys haven't seen it, you should go out and look at it. It's on Bleacher Report if you want to see it there. Let's move on to a rumor regarding Kawhi Leonard. So NBC Sports is reporting that Kawhi Leonard does not want to join LeBron on the Lakers this offseason. I could have told you that. I don't think this is really news. Why would Kawhi Leonard want to come join this circus that LeBron James has brought with him and... Kind of fueled the fires on Kawhi Leonard is the last player in the NBA that wants any sort of drama. He keeps to himself. He's not very outgoing. He doesn't, it's not like he dislikes the media, but he doesn't really want the spotlight. It makes no sense for Kawhi Leonard to come to the Lakers. And honestly, once LeBron came to the Lakers thinking it through more, it should have been pretty clear that. Kawhi probably wasn't going to want to come to the Lakers. But after seeing everything that's happened this season, no. It wouldn't have made any sense. This isn't a surprise to me. Even for the most optimistic Laker fan, I don't see how you could convince yourself that Kawhi Leonard would want to come to the Lakers. He makes even less sense than Kevin Durant. I don't think Kevin Durant's coming either. But Kawhi Leonard, out of all of the max free agent targets... I would be most shocked if he ended up in purple and gold next season. Let's move on to some injury updates with the Lakers. So Lonzo Ball is most likely done for the year. He had a grade 3 ankle sprain he suffered back in January against the Houston Rockets. At the time when he got injured, the Lakers training staff said that Lonzo Ball's Recovery time would be four to six weeks, and then he'd be back playing. I want to get into that a little bit more later on when I'm talking about who's to blame for the Lakers' issues they've had this year. Not saying that Lonzo Ball is the reason at all, just getting a little bit more into injuries and their training staff and how they seem to give a shorter timetable for their players to return than what? actually ends up happening a four to six week timetable for a grade three ankle sprain is not realistic at all when he first had that injury i said on this podcast you're looking at more like a three-month recovery timetable if you're lucky it's what reggie jackson had about a three-month recovery last year with the pistons when he had a grade three ankle sprain there was another player last year grade three ankle sprains are not common it's a complete tear of the ligament in the ankle, and it's a tough injury to recover from. It's, from what I've heard, very painful. A lot of rehab goes into it. You can elect to have surgery, but that involves putting some metal into your ankle to stabilize the ankle, or you can try to just rehab it on your own. Lonzo Ball looks like, well, so far he's just been trying to rehab it on his own. A little part of me is kind of worried that If his name starts getting floated out in trade rumors this offseason, which it almost certainly will, he's going to elect to have surgery on it, unless, obviously, it's completely healed by the summer, but if it's giving him any issues, just because even last year, Lonzo Ball had a knee injury he was dealing with. He was out the last about 20 games of the season, tried to rehab it on his own. He didn't have surgery, and then even when the summer started, he still didn't have surgery, and... Halfway through the summer, once there were Kawhi Leonard rumors, how the Lakers were at least potentially thinking of including Lonzo Ball in trade for Kawhi Leonard, all of a sudden he goes off and has surgery on his knee, and, oh, well, he's not healthy, so that's going to be an issue for the Spurs if they're trying to make a trade involving him. And, look, the same thing could happen this offseason. We'll see. I I just I hope Lonzo Ball doesn't need surgery, period, whether he does it to not get traded or whatever the reasons might be i just hope he doesn't require that surgery and he can come back and just have an actual nba offseason to be able to train and be fully healthy and be able to work on basketball drills something he wasn't able to do last year he was even dealing with some injuries the year before going into his rookie year so he couldn't completely train i just want to see what lonzo ball looks like coming out of a whole offseason where he's completely healthy and able to train. I want to move on to Brandon Ingram's injury which is a lot more serious than Lonzo Ball's injury. So Brandon Ingram has had been on a complete tear. He was averaging, I believe, 29 points per game, just under 29 points per game, eight rebounds per game, I think five assists a game, shooting 75% from the free throw line and over 50% from the field and that was since the uh, All-Star break, and then a few games ago, he just it was against the Clippers when they played the Clippers last Monday, he had shoulder soreness after playing two games earlier against the Suns and playing really well in a game that the Lakers lost to the worst team in the Western Conference. but he had shoulders soreness, so he was out for that game, and then he missed their next game against the Nuggets. After that game against the Nuggets, he got some tests on his shoulder, and over this past weekend, it was revealed that Brandon Ingram's shoulder injury was deep venous thrombosis, which is DVT. It means that he had a blood clot in his shoulder, and that's a scary injury to have. You think about Brandon Ingram's 21 years old, to have to worry about blood clots at that age, that's something that Chris Bosch is the only athlete that, I can really remember getting blood clots. Chris Bosch's injury, people have been comparing Brandon Ingram's injury to Chris Bosch's injury with blood clots. It's not the same. Chris Bosch had a blood clot in his lung, and he had it twice. The first time he had it, he was out for the rest of the year, which Brandon Ingram is out for the rest of the year as well. He tried to come back the following year, played, and then around the All-Star break, He got a second blood clot in his lung, and at that point, that effectively ended his NBA career. He still hasn't officially retired. He's said in the past that he still hopes to come back and play, but no team is going to sign him. It's not worth it. If he plays, he could end up dying on the court, and that's not worth it. Brandon Ingram, he's going to have to be on blood-thinning medication for at least a few months, You cannot play basketball while you're on blood-thinning medication because if you get cut, even if it's a minor cut, because you're on blood-thinning medication, it can turn into something much more serious. So Ingram's done for the rest of this year. His career is not over. This does not mean that his career is over. He will, unless there are complications, come back next year and hopefully have a clean bill of health. But the real concern is he's 21 years old. He already had a blood clot. Once you have one blood clot, you're at a higher risk to get another blood clot versus someone who has never had a blood clot in their life. If Brandon Ingram gets a second blood clot, that's when his career could be in jeopardy because much like the Chris Bosh stuff, if he gets a second blood clot, he is most likely going to need to be on blood thinning medication for the rest of his life. And that makes it very difficult to be able to play basketball for the reasons that I just mentioned. If you get cut, it turns into something much more serious than someone who isn't on blood thing medication getting a cut. So there's implications for his trade value moving forward, but I don't really even want to focus on that too much. I just hope that Brandon Ingram is able to recover from this blood clot injury and just has a healthy life, regardless of how good of an NBA player he might turn out to be, and he did look like he was turning into a really good NBA player before this injury, had a really good 10-game stretch or so before he got injured, but beyond that, beyond basketball, you just hope that Brandon Ingram's going to be okay and going to be able to stay healthy. I will talk about his trade value because this is an NBA podcast, and that's what a lot of people want to talk about as well. Trade value-wise, it just really depends what other GMs think about this injury. If they get some medical intel on him and they hear that he could end up getting another blood clot, you just got to weigh how valuable he is and how talented he is versus the fear that he could get another blood clot, and at which point... He might have to retire from basketball, and you just feel for Brandon Ingram. Like I said, 21 years old. He hasn't gotten his first big contract. I think that, at least financially, is the biggest difference between when Chris Bosh got his injury. He had already gone through his rookie contract. He had gone through his first major contract with the Toronto Raptors. He had gone through two major contracts. He was in the middle of his second big contract with the Miami Heat, and then he got the blood clots. With Brandon Ingram, he's on the third year of his four-year rookie contract. He has not gotten his first major contract yet, and even if, and hopefully, again, he does not get another blood clot, but even if he doesn't get another blood clot, you got to think about how this is going to impact his value, at least what he can command on an open market, or even with the Lakers on a contract extension, moving forward with whatever team, whether it be the Lakers or some other team, looking to sign him, just knowing that there's always that chance that he could get another blood clot, and then this whole contract would not be worth it because he wouldn't be able to play anymore. So I just, I hope that he ends up being okay. I hope that he doesn't get another blood clot. And that's the most important thing to take out of all of this. Let's move on to LeBron James. So, two bits of news on LeBron James. First, obviously want to congratulate him on passing Michael Jordan for fourth on the all-time scoring list. LeBron James, when he did pass him in the game against the Denver Nuggets last week, the Staples Center had a video commemorating this that moment. And... That was in the first time out after he passed Michael Jordan, and LeBron James got a little emotional. He said after the game Michael Jordan was the reason why he played basketball, and it was was a good moment to have. It was one, another, just little light of positivity in a Lakers season that's otherwise just been disastrous, so... You got to be able to celebrate those moments, even if he is on a struggling team and in a position that he probably never thought that he would be on. It's just nice to see that. And it's just congratulations to LeBron James for passing him. It's incredible. You think of LeBron James, me personally, I think of him first as a passer, second as a scorer. But... He's the only player in NBA history to be top 10 in NBA in points scored and assists in his career, passing Jordan for fourth all-time. Jordan, you think of a score in the NBA, you think of Michael Jordan. So for LeBron James to pass him, very impressive and just well done, LeBron. The other bit of news on LeBron James, just wanted to bring up, is that he's going to be on a minutes restriction for the rest of the year and won't play back to backs. This is a, it's a smart move. It's something that the Lakers needed to do. You got to preserve him for the future. He's in his 16th year. He's 34 years old. There's no need for him to be playing 36, 38 minutes a night. The Lakers, while they aren't mathematically eliminated from the playoffs, they're out of the playoffs. They're seven games back with 15 16 games left the Clippers and or actually it's the Spurs who are in eighth place all the Spurs have to do is just go 500 the rest of the year and then the Lakers could win every game the rest of the year They'd still miss the playoffs and the Spurs as long as they Stay winning at the same pace that they have so far They'll go a few games above 500 and it's just it's not gonna matter save LeBron James you're actually better off losing this year anyways. I understand that you don't want to make it a habit of losing, especially with LeBron James, and you shouldn't. But at the same time, you're going to try to get Anthony Davis this offseason. The more you lose, the better chance you have of getting a top four pick. So the NBA draft lottery readed the whole rules involving the draft. In the past, teams with the worst record in the NBA had a 25% chance of getting the first pick in the draft. Now I believe it's the top three or top four or top four worst teams in the NBA that all have the same odds and it's lower around 14-15% chance of getting the number one pick. And it actually favors teams kind of in the middle of the records that didn't make the playoffs, so the seventh, eighth worst team in the league. They get a lot better odds. The Lakers, right now as it currently stands, they have about a 4% chance of getting a top four pick in the NBA draft. But realistically, they could fall all the way down to the 8th worst record in the NBA, at which point they would have a 34% chance of getting a top four pick in the NBA draft. That's another thing about the lottery this year is that in the past, the draft lottery was just picks one through three, would be decided through the NBA Draft Lottery. Any teams that weren't selected in picks one through three, it would just go in reverse order of teams that had the worst record. So the team with the worst record that wasn't picked in the top three would get the fourth pick, then the fifth, sixth, so on and so on. It still goes that way, but now instead of it just being the top three picks decided by the lottery, it's now the top four picks. So it's definitely in the Lakers' best interest to lose as many games as possible, while not outwardly looking like they're trying to tank, but it's smart for them to put them on a minutes restriction, have them come back as healthy as possible next year, and they will hopefully, for their own sake, be able to do some damage next year. Now I want to get into the last segment on this episode, just talking about the Lakers and assessing who's to blame for their struggles this year. So let's start with the front office. a lot of stuff that they have done wrong in the past year two years let's start off with just how it all kind of started when magic johnson and rob Polinka first were hired as president of basketball operations and general manager respectively so i believe this was even right before rob Polinka got hired as the gm magic johnson had already been put in as the president of basketball operations Jerry West, at the time, was still an advisor for the Golden State Warriors. His contract was running out. He had let it be known to the Lakers that he wanted to come back and be a part of their organization and work in the front office in some capacity. Magic Johnson and Jeannie Buss both had no interest in bringing him back. Jeannie Buss, there was a report at the time where she, her thinking was something along the lines of, Jerry West is kind of too old to help anymore, and we're trying to go into a more youthful movement with Magic Johnson and whoever he would end up bringing on as GM, which ended up being Rob Polinka. So Jerry West wanted to come back to LA, though, and since the Lakers didn't want him, he went to the Clippers. What are the Clippers doing right now? They are the seventh seed in the West when this year was supposed to just be a year to rebuild and get a draft pick, remember the Clippers, if they don't, if they make the playoffs, they do not get their draft pick, it goes to the Boston Celtics, if they miss the playoffs, they get to keep their own draft pick, they traded away Tobias Harris, their best player at the trade deadline, thinking, well at least most of us were thinking, okay, that's going to be the end of the Clippers playoff run, like it was cute that they were in it for this long, but They're going to bow out. They want to keep their draft pick. They have a lot of cap space moving forward. But somehow they have gotten even better since they traded Tobias Harris. And credit needs to go to Doc Rivers and his coaching staff, the players as well. But Jerry West, even if he doesn't have the title of general manager for the Los Angeles Clippers, you cannot seriously believe that he does not have his hand involved in every single move they make personnel-wise. He was able to fleece the Lakers of Evita Zubots for Mike Muscala. He had a really good trade with Tobias Harris, even though Harris is a really good player, trading him to the Sixers for Landry Schmet, who I think is going to be one of the better spot-up shooters in the NBA for a long time moving forward. And they also got the Miami Heat's unprotected 2021 first-round pick, so that was a very nice move for the Clippers And just not having Jerry West in the front office, I think, I'm pretty confident that if Jerry West was in the front office, a lot of the mistakes that the Lakers front office has made since they decided not to hire him wouldn't have happened. And I guess just to continue kind of in chronological order, one of the mistakes that probably wouldn't have happened was Magic Johnson overruling the scouting department in last year's draft in last year's draft in the first round where the scouting department wanted the Lakers to go with either Amari Spellman or they had a few wings that they were interested in as well. There haven't been any reports on who those exact wings were. I would like to think one of them was probably Landry Shamet. He ended up going, I think, two picks after the Lakers to the Sixers. Magic Johnson wanted Mo Wagner, and he didn't want to listen to the scouting department who told him to go with other players. Now, Mo Wagner had a career night against the Boston Celtics over the weekend, but overall, he just he hasn't gotten much playing time. And so, yeah, you can make the argument that, well, we haven't even seen him that much, so how can you just decide that he's not worthy of that draft pick, but... The fact that we haven't seen him much when the Lakers' center position, especially after the Zubots trade, has been so awful. But even before the Zubots trade, JaVale McGee was struggling. Tyson Chandler had been showing his age for a long time. And the fact that Wagner still could not get on the floor really spoke a lot about how he just was not ready. He, he was not good enough at that time, and I still would argue at this time he should not be in a rotation for a playoff-caliber team, which is what the Lakers thought that they were going to have this year. Now, again, with the 25th overall pick, you usually, if you're a playoff contender, that pick isn't going to be in your rotation, at least not in year one. But there were players, Landry Shamet being the most notable player that was available in that spot, that the Lakers scouting department was telling Magic Johnson, take a look at these players. He didn't want to pay the scouting department however much they pay the scouting department to scout players, and then you don't take their advice. When they've shown in the past that they are really good at what they do. They were able to find Kyle Kuzma with the 27th pick in the draft, Josh Hart with the 30th, Evita Zubac with the 34th pick in the draft, and still they just did not, Magic Johnson did not want to listen to them. So that's disappointing. I'm not saying that Mo Wagner doesn't deserve to be in the NBA. I'm just saying that at that pick, there were better options, and it would have helped Magic Johnson. It would have helped this Lakers team if they had gone after a wing who could shoot. Mo Wagner can space the floor a little bit, but not a great shooter. Landry Schmidt would have been a fantastic player to draft at number 25, but Magic, you didn't want him. You decided that You knew more about the players coming in from college basketball and international basketball than the team of scouts that you pay to specifically watch those players and decide who's going to be good and who's not. I guarantee Magic Johnson does not spend very much time watching film of college players, especially... I can't imagine Magic Johnson watching any EuroLeague basketball. And it's just disappointing to see that he overruled the scouting department. But this is a smaller issue than the one I'm about to get to, which is letting Julius Randle and Brooke Lopez go in free agency in order to sign JaVale McGee, Michael Beasley, and Lance Stevenson. So there was a report that came out earlier today from Bill O'Ram of the... Athletic saying that the Lakers coaching staff, Luke Walton and the staff, pleaded with Magic Johnson to re-sign Brook Lopez and Julius Randle after they signed LeBron James and how they thought that they would be a great fit together. And Magic Johnson was not having it. He didn't want to listen to them. Instead, he decided to let them go and sign JaVale McGee, Michael Beasley, and Lance Stevenson. Now, maybe there's some truth to this report. I'm not buying it completely though because if the Lakers coaching staff really did want Magic Johnson to re-sign Brooke Lopez and Julius Randle, why did this report not come out earlier? Why is it taking until now when it's very clear that Luke Walton's job is on the line and he will most likely be fired after the season? Why are we just now hearing that, oh you know what, the coaching staff that is under all of this fire they wanted a different roster. They thought that Julius Randle and Brooke Lopez would have been good fits. I would hope that if they told Magic Johnson they were going to be good fits that and that they wanted them to stay on the team, that Magic Johnson would do everything he could to try to help his coaching staff. But I also wouldn't be surprised if Magic Johnson just decided, you know what, no, you're here to coach. I'm here to decide the construction of the roster, and I think that it's going to be smarter to add Michael Beasley and Lance Stevenson instead of Julius Randle and Brooke Lopez. Yes, the Lakers had to renounce Brook Lopez's cap hold in order to sign LeBron James. Brook Lopez was getting paid over $20 million last year in the final year of his contract with the Lakers. He had a cap hold of just under $30 million. So the Lakers renounced his cap hold. They still had they still could have signed him though. They could have used a, an exception to sign him. He signed with the Milwaukee Bucks on a $3.2 million contract, I believe, and they used part of their, uh, I believe it was their biannual exception or else part of their mid-level exception to sign Brooke Lopez. And the Lakers decided to use that same little over $3 million to sign Michael Beasley. Brooke Lopez is now the starting center, for the number one team in the NBA, in the Milwaukee Bucks. He's shooting a career best three point percentage at 36.7%. Meanwhile, the Lakers are second worst in the league in three point percentage at 33.3%. Julius Randle is on the Pelicans and has been having an incredible season. Averaging I think just under 20 points and 10 rebounds a game since the Anthony Davis drama happened Julius Randle has completely taken ownership of that team and been the leader for that team They've actually been playing better as of late rather than worse with Anthony Davis only playing a limited amount of minutes Julius Randle would have been an excellent fit next to LeBron James They would have been able to play bully ball both of them Julius Randle There is no player in the NBA that he will back down from Joel Embiid is the one player that I can really think of that, okay, Julius Randle have a tough time shoving him around and out-physicaling him, or whatever the word would be. But maybe Nikola Jokic too, but not many players that Julius Randle can't bully inside, and it would have been nice to be able to have him and have Brook Lopez who can stretch the floor. Julius Randle this year is shooting three-pointers, Much better than he has in the past. He's shooting, I think, around 32 or 33%, which, look, it's not a great percentage, but it's passable. It's enough to where you have to respect his shot. And that's something where I think Kyle Kuzma is shooting around the same percentage as Julius Randle. And Kuzma is a much different player than Julius Randle. You think of Kuzma, you think of someone who can shoot the three, even though he really can't, especially not this year. Julius Randle, though, he can do so much other stuff. The one negative with Julius Randle is that defensively this year, his interest defensively has just been non-existent. He he absolutely can play defense because... For three years when he was on the Lakers, he, well, not for three years, but for the last year he was on the Lakers, he played defense. He was a good defensive player his last year as a member of the Lakers, and you just need that type of commitment from him. But Lakers decided they didn't want Randall, didn't want Brooke Lopez, and said they have JaVale McGee, who's been struggling ever since he came down with pneumonia in December, and I'm not blaming that on him. Obviously, he didn't have any control over that, but... He's been a completely different player in a bad way since he returned from that illness, and he's just been sulking around. That's part of the reason, supposedly, why the Lakers traded Evita Zubats was so that McGee could start again for some reason. They did that, and that another player that they signed instead of Lopez and Randall, Michael Beasley, they needed to get rid of him, and for whatever reason, the Lakers front office just doesn't know that they can just release a player instead of having to trade him. So I I don't understand that. The other thing I just wanted to talk about was the Zubots trade, but I already brought that up. Just so many moves that could have worked out so much better. And not just that they didn't sign Julius Randle, it's that they didn't sign Julius Randle so that they could sign Rajon Rondo. Rondo has been a huge disappointment this year. Offensively, he's had a few games where he's had a positive impact. He's unfortunately and sadly one of the Lakers' best three-point shooters on the year, at least percentage-wise. That speaks a little bit more to the roster construction and the lack of three-point shooters than it does Rondo and his ability to shoot the three. He's okay at it, but he's not a good three-point shooter. But defensively, Rondo has had no interest this entire year in playing any defense at all. The game against the Denver Nuggets last week when the Lakers were down by 22, 24 points going into the second half and Rondo just looked completely disinterested. Luke Walton had Alex Caruso, who's on a two-way contract, play most of the second half instead of Rajon Rondo. And he had a lot of other G League type players come in and play. It was basically the G Leaguers or second round picks from last year and LeBron James. And they came back. They cut it to within two points. The difference between Rondo and Alex Caruso. Caruso is not nearly as good of a basketball player as Rajon Rondo. But Caruso actually cared. He actually tried on defense. Even though he's not a good defender, he worked His butt off to stay in front of his man when he did get beat he hustled to get back in front and Rondo was not pleased that he wasn't getting much playing time with about two minutes left in the game He got up off of the Lakers bench and went walked over to some courtside seats in the stands about Ten seats away from the Lakers bench and just sat there for the last two minutes and that was disgusting I thought he should have just been cut immediately there's no reason to have him on the team anymore. You, The, the Lakers tried to sell everyone on the fact that, oh, Rondo's going to be this great mentor for Lonzo Ball. With the way Rondo's been acting this entire year, especially against the Nuggets, you really want him mentoring Lonzo Ball. And his play has not been good this year. Rondo's not coming back after this year. At least he better not be coming back. What's the point of having him on the roster anymore? He does something that disrespectful to the organization to where he makes it known. I don't want to sit near my teammates. I can't stand to be near my teammates or my coaching staff, so I'm going to go sit further away and just watch the game. That's disgusting. He should not be on the team anymore. He should have been cut. It's after March 1st, so the deadline to be cut by a team and then still be able to sign with another team for the playoffs has passed so he wouldn't be able to showcase his skills and be able to drive up the his next contract for himself this offseason, it would have been a fitting punishment for him. But instead, the Lakers did not cut him. They decided not to even give him a fine. And that speaks again to just the lack of leadership and the ability to really think things through on the part of Magic Johnson and Rob Palenka. Enough bashing for the time being with the front office, I want to move on to the coaching staff. I've been pretty adamant in past podcasts talking about this coaching staff and the disappointments that I've had with them. The two biggest ones have been the inconsistent and just frankly horrible rotation patterns that the coaching staff has had for their players. And then the fact that this coaching staff is the only staff in the league without a shooting coach. Let's first start with the shooting coach. So, The Lakers are last in the league in free throw percentage. They're second worst in the league in three-point percentage at 33.3%. Only the Suns, who are the worst team in the Western Conference, are worse at 32.9%. What is even more frustrating is that before Luke Walton became the head coach, Byron Scott, who I would argue was a worse coach than Luke Walton, I don't really think it's even that close. but Byron Scott was smart enough to have Tracy Murray as a shooting coach. Tracy Murray was not that great of an NBA player. He was an okay shooter, but at least you had someone as a shooting coach, someone who was just focused on making sure that your players' form and technique was as good as it possibly could be. And that was under a different coaching staff, under a different front office regime. So the fact that Magic Johnson and Rob Palenka took over in the front office, and they're supposed to be doing everything better than the past regime of Mitch Kupchak and Jim Buss, and yet they can't make sure that their coaching staff has someone as important as a shooting coach. It just blows my mind, and I've harped on about this in past podcasts, so I'm not going to continue to talk about this, but it's incredibly frustrating, and I could go on for a very long time talking about how it just doesn't make any sense. The other thing I talked about with the coaching staff is just the horrible rotation patterns when it comes to substitutes. It's not just that it's horrible, it's that it's been inconsistent too. The most disappointing thing out of all of it, though, has been when the Lakers have been relatively healthy with their three best wing players in LeBron James, Brandon Ingram, and Kyle Kuzma. Luke Walton, for whatever reason, he really since he started coaching the Lakers three years ago, he's always liked to keep his starters together and then keep his bench together. Play a 10-man rotation where you have your five starters and then, yes, you gradually sub two, three players out at a time, but within a few minutes after subbing out the first two or three players, you sub out the last two or three starters, and then you have a whole bench mob together plays together and then you have the starters that play together you need to be able to adapt Brandon Ingram and LeBron James before LeBron James's groin injury they did not play well together LeBron James put up very efficient numbers whether Brandon Ingram was on the court or off but Brandon Ingram's numbers were much better with LeBron James off the court and if I knew that and if a lot of other people knew that I have to imagine Luke Walton knew that as well, so for him to continuously make sure that Brandon Ingram and LeBron James, except for maybe two or three minutes each game, were only playing on the court when the other one was on the court made no sense. The fact that you have three really good wing players in Kyle Kuzma, Brandon Ingram, and LeBron James, and that at any stretch when all three of them are healthy, even if only two of them are healthy, one of those players, and preferably two of those three players, should be on the court at all times. And Luke Walton, this entire season, has gone stretches where each game, for five, four, five minutes, six minutes, Kyle Kuzma, Brandon Ingram, and LeBron James, when they're all healthy, they're on the bench. They're not playing. And the Lakers... How hard is it to predict that you're going to have a negative in the plus-minus department when all three of them are on the bench? That's when other teams would make their runs. The Lakers had no one to turn to. Who was going to be able to create their own shot and ignite the offense? Lonzo Ball can create for others, but he's not someone who you can just give him the ball and say, okay, go get me two points or go get me three points. Kuzma, Ingram, and LeBron James were the only players that the Lakers had this year that could do that night in and night out. And so for Luke Walton to not have at least one of them in the game at all times, especially when they're all healthy, it just it doesn't make any sense. And it's been disappointing this entire year to see how Luke Walton just refuses to adapt. He has his own way that he wants to go about coaching, and that's how he's going to do it. Another rotation that, bugged me, although to a lesser degree, but was still alarming nonetheless, was having Rajon Rondo and Lance Stevenson in the game at the same time. They both need the ball in their hands in order to be successful, and neither one of them are really great players, so why are you putting them both in the game at the same time when there's only one ball, last time I checked, there's only one basketball on the court at one time, right? So why do you have two players that they Really don't do much else other than offensively, if they have the ball in their hands, they can create. Why do you have two of them in the game at the same time? Defensively, neither one of them care at all. You put them both at the one and the two, or put Lance at the three, and then it's at the one and the three. Two of your three perimeter players don't care about defense. How do you think that's going to go for you? Anyways, let's move on to another player. Another person that you could blame for the Lakers' struggles, and you should at least somewhat, is LeBron James. He's the leader of the team. The biggest thing about LeBron James, obviously, and his fault with everything that's gone on with the Lakers was when Anthony Davis stuff came up. He did not try to hide at all the fact that he was willing for the Lakers to trade the entire team for Anthony Davis, and even if that might be so and i'm sure i'm sure even if you ask all the other lakers players like if you were general manager would you trade yourself for anthony davis if they're being honest of course they would trade themselves they know that anthony davis is a better player than any of them except for maybe lebron james but at the same time lebron james is a player not a coach not the front office. The front office is in charge of trades. There's a difference in terms of the relationship that players have with each other versus players and front office, and even players and coaches to a lesser extent, although coaches and players usually have a better relationship than the front office and players. But a player-to-player relationship, that's supposed to be a brotherhood. That's You go on the court and you do battle night in and night out, 82 games each season as long as you're healthy, with other players on the court who are ideally doing the same thing, and they will give all that they have in order to be successful, try to put the team first, and when you see not just another player but your leader of the team openly making it known that, yes, I want Anthony Davis and whatever we have to do to get him is fine with me. Even if you try to make it seem to yourself like it's not that big of a deal, it is a big deal. You're not going to, again, even if you're not consciously making less of an effort, you're just not going to put forth the same effort for someone like LeBron James when he's making it known, yeah, you know what, you're disposable, like, I'm fine with you leaving the team if that means I get someone else. That's when these issues really started. I mean, LeBron James, when he was injured, the Lakers were struggling. But somehow, since he's come back from his injury with this Anthony Davis stuff, the Lakers have struggled even more now than they did before when LeBron James was still injured before this Anthony Davis stuff came out. And on top of the Anthony Davis stuff, just LeBron James as a leader in general, this season has been a huge disappointment For me, being able to observe him up close and watch every game of his and listen to him in his post-game interviews, there are so many post-game interviews where if the Lakers win the game, LeBron James is happy, talking about how he loves this team, he loves the team that he has, he feels like they're in a really good place, and then every time they lose, instead of him just taking ownership for the loss like a leader should, even if he thinks after a loss that he gave everything that he could and that it really was not his fault, you're the leader of the team. Your team loses, just take ownership. Take ownership for the loss, say it's on you. Even if you had an incredible game, it's on you for not getting the rest of your teammates ready mentally for this game. Even though they should be doing that themselves, you're the leader. You're the final one that goes through. you got to make sure everyone's ready. And he did not take ownership for that at all this year. Brandon Ingram even took more ownership than him. There were a few games where, after a loss that the Lakers shouldn't have lost, Brandon Ingram in the post-game interviews would say how, yeah, you know what, put this one on me. Defensively, we sucked. My fault. I'm the heartbeat of our defense. Offensively, we didn't have a good game. My fault. I should have played better. It's on me. If I played better, we would have won. I didn't hear that once from LeBron James this entire year. And if he just took ownership instead of trying to find other players to blame, that's another way just to make your teammates play harder for you, and it's disappointing that he couldn't realize that. I want to move on to one other aspect of the Lakers' season that definitely there's some blame that goes towards this injuries. For why the Lakers are in the boat that they are right now. They were 4th place in the Western Conference on Christmas Day when LeBron James strained his groin. LeBron ended up missing about over a month, uh, I believe, before he came back from his groin injury and the Lakers were 6 and 12 in his absence. While he was injured, Lonzo Ball got injured with a grade 3 ankle sprain while they were in Houston and That game, the Lakers were beating the Rockets in Houston. Rockets were, I don't think they had Chris Paul or Clint Capella, but that was in the middle of James Harden's incredible stretch. The Rockets, as a team, were winning a lot of ball games, and the Lakers were up by like 20 points in the third quarter. They, I believe, had won their game before. It looked like they were starting to turn a corner and show that they were figuring out how to play without LeBron James. Then Lonzo Ball goes down with a grade 3 ankle sprain. And I just want to talk a little bit about their diagnosis of Le- of Lonzo Ball with his grade 3 ankle sprain. I'll come back to that in a second. I just want to wrap up all of the injuries. So then LeBron, when he was injured with his groin strain, he was listed as day-to-day. But he ended up missing over a month. So Lonzo, four to six weeks with a grade 3 ankle sprain. It's been eight, nine weeks right now, and he's still not close to being back. The Lakers have said he's probably, well, there's been reports that he's probably going to be done for the year. I can't imagine him coming back now. What's the point? The Lakers still have not ruled him out for the year. But I want to focus on the Lakers kind of diagnosing their players with injuries and then saying they're going to be back sooner than they actually end up being back. So Lonzo Ball, as soon as that grade 3 ankle sprain happened, the 4 to 6 weeks, I said it was going to be much longer than that. A simple search on Google, if you just type in what is the recovery timetable from a grade 3 ankle sprain, it shows that it's several months. There was not one person, and I listened to a lot of different people's opinions when Lonzo Ball had his ankle injury, there's not one person who agreed with that 4 to 6 week time frame whether it be a doctor that was being interviewed, or an NBA personality that knew what it was like to deal with a grade three ankle sprain, and this has become kind of a common theme for the Lakers, even dating back to last year, too, but LeBron James, his injury, like I said, when he strained his groin, he was listed as day-to-day, and he was out for over a month, and I just don't get why they need to make it seem like players are going to come back sooner than they actually do. It's frustrating. It's frustrating for the fan base because you plan, okay, well, Lonzo's going to be out four to six weeks. Yeah, that sucks, but you know what? At least he's going to come back. At least he's going to be back for the last six weeks of the season. We can make a playoff push. Same thing with LeBron James oh, well, it's just day-to-day, so he should be back soon. And then it becomes frustrating when the player, and it's not the player's fault that they're out longer than the timetable that was given, but they're out for longer than the timetable that was given, and fans start to get frustrated, thinking, well, why Why is he still not back? What's wrong? What's wrong with that player? When in actuality, there's nothing wrong with the player or his rehab. It's just the training staff said that they were going to be back a lot sooner than they realistically were. And I say training staff, and I hope it is the training staff that's giving these timetables, but a part of me thinks that the only reasoning I could see for why they're giving such short timetables is the front office doing this to increase ticket value. And let me elaborate on that a little bit. So with the Lakers, with LeBron James's day-to-day injury, it's in the middle of the season. They're trying to sell as many tickets as they can, get these sellouts going. Who's going to want to come to a Laker game if they don't have LeBron James? There's still going to be people that want to come, but not as many, as many and for not as high of a price. If you say that LeBron James is day-to-day, even if you do know that he's going to be out for over a month, you can still sell tickets a week from the injury, two weeks from the injury, where most people are going to believe that, okay, well, LeBron James is going to be back. Yeah, I want to see him. Yeah, I'll spend whatever it takes for me to get two tickets to a game. If he's not there, though, then you got to think about it a little more and you're not going to want to spend as much. Same thing with Lonzo Ball, the four to six weeks. Lonzo Ball's another player that, aside from LeBron James, he's the definitely the most iconic player on the Lakers. So when you say four to six weeks, people that have tickets or are thinking about getting tickets towards the end of the year. Well, Lonzo Ball's going to be back. LeBron should be healthy. Lonzo Ball should be healthy. Yeah, let's get these tickets. So again, I just I really hope it is the training staff that is deciding the timetables for this stuff, but if it is then the Lakers just need to get a new training staff because it's really alarming if you don't know how to Diagnose the timetable for injuries because this isn't just a one-time occurrence happened with Lonzo Ball happened with LeBron James It happened with Lonzo Ball last year where he got injured around the all-star break and they were saying he Forgot if they said he was going to be day-to-day or he'd be back within two or three weeks and he missed the rest of the year It's just it's a common theme that keeps reoccurring and it's disappointing to see and overall with All of these issues that have happened and just the injuries in general going back to the injuries kind of debilitating the team it just seemed like whenever they were starting to turn a corner either collectively as a team or a player individually Lonzo Ball was playing really well right before he got injured LeBron James it seemed like at the start of the season he wasn't in a hundred percent great shape but he had worked his way into it leading up to the Christmas Day game then he goes down with the injury. The Brandon Ingram blood clot stuff, we talked about how great of a 10-game tear he had been on previous to his injury. It just These injuries have been momentum killers the entire year, and it would be easier to deal with if the front office had set up Luke Walton and the Lakers for more success by surrounding LeBron James with some more shooters instead of players like Michael Beasley, and Lance Stevenson. But you gotta go with what the Lakers have. And what they have is a flawed roster. It would also be easier if the coaching staff was able to make better adjustments or was willing to hire a shooting coach. That would go a long way. But they didn't do any of that. And so I'll end this podcast just ranking out of these four different scenarios. We actually had a... We had a poll on our Twitter asking you guys what you thought was most to blame for the Lakers' struggles this year between the front office, the coaching staff, LeBron James, and the injuries. And it's still open for another over a day. So right now we have 156 votes. It's really close. And really surprising, actually, too. So front office... Is winning right now, 35% of the votes. LeBron James has 30% of the votes. Injuries are 29% of the votes. And then coaching staff is only 6% of the votes. I am pretty shocked that coaching staff doesn't have a lot more votes just because it seems like everyone has been blaming Luke Walton for a lot of the stuff that is happening. And I'd be curious if instead of we had said, Instead of us saying front office, if we had said Magic Johnson, how that would have changed? Because it seems like Magic Johnson can do no wrong with the Lakers. I get he won five championships with the Lakers back in the 80s. I get that he brought LeBron James to the Lakers, or helped bring LeBron James to the Lakers. Although you could make an argument that LeBron was coming whether Magic was here or not, as long as the Lakers had someone, even remotely competent, in the decision-making chair for the front office. But what's alarming to me is that it seems like it's going to take years of Magic Johnson continuing to make head-scratching moves and moves that just don't make any sense before we start talking about if he should be on the hot seat. You think about the moves that he has made and how he has constructed this roster over Last off season and how he has handled everything with the failed Anthony Davis trade talks during this season. Any other person in his position, especially at a high profile position like with the Lakers, we would at the very least be having a discussion about is this guy's job safe this off season. But with Magic Johnson, there is no one talking about that. And as much as I love Magic Johnson and he is, if not. He is the most beloved player in Lakers history. You could make the case he is the most beloved former player in sports history. Not just in Los Angeles, but of any sport, at least in the U.S. But even with that said, he still needs to get criticism and the criticism that most people are not giving him. And there really should be a discussion about is he the right man for the job at the very least whether you want to talk about if he is on the hot seat or should be on the hot seat and there should be talk about possibly firing him at the very least is he the right person for the job making these final decisions for the lakers and so far throughout his tenure the answer has been no hopefully that changes he's obviously going to get another chance this offseason We'll see how it goes. If he can deliver a second max free agent, then not all is forgiven, but he definitely looks a lot better. But it's just all of the all of the moves leading up to this, all of the stuff that forces Magic Johnson to actually think about what he wants to do. The LeBron James signing was a no-brainer, and that obviously Magic Johnson got that right, but he didn't have to sit and think, well, do I really want LeBron James? LeBron James said, yeah, I want to sign, Magic said, great, here's the contract, come here, let's build this team. But every other decision along the way where it's actually taken some thought process of, well, who should we put around LeBron James, should we keep Julius Randle, what about Brook Lopez? He's decided on the wrong answer just about every time, and it's just really disappointing to see. So, back to my own personal opinion on who I think is most to blame, who or what I think is most to blame with the injuries. First, got to put the front office for everything that I have said about Magic Johnson. The buck starts and stops with him. He is the final decision maker. This roster could and should have looked a lot different than it does right now. He did not do Luke Walton and the coaching staff any favors. So I'm putting the blame first on Magic Johnson, Rob Palinka, and the front office. After that, I'm going with LeBron James. LeBron James, just as a leader, it's been a disappointing season, and just the way that he handled the Anthony Davis stuff was just... He could not have done a worse job of handling the Anthony Davis stuff. If he handles it well, I think the Lakers are still at least in the playoff hunt. Not necessarily in 8th place right now, but they're within striking distance, and obviously injuries with Brandon Ingram and Lonzo Ball, if the Brandon Ingram injury doesn't happen, then they probably have a realistic chance of making the playoffs if they're in striking distance right now, but with that Ingram injury, it just it would have been rough either way. Injuries are right there with LeBron James. I'm giving the slight edge to LeBron James, but injuries you got to blame those a lot, too. Just like I had said, any time there was any momentum building with the Lakers, the injuries just completely sapped all the momentum out of them and put them right back at square one where they had to just start over and try to figure out how to how to move forward and be successful again. And lastly, I'm going to put the coaching staff as well. I said I was surprised that only 6% voted for the coaching staff, Not because I thought they deserved more blame, but just because of how everyone else was giving them so much blame. You still need to blame the coaching staff. They could have done a much better job, and Luke Walton, especially with his job on the line, I would have at least thought that he would be a lot more proactive in taking chances and being a little bit more adaptive, trying to figure out what works and what doesn't, in, at the very least, just an effort to try to save his job, but... He really hasn't so far, and that's been a huge disappointment. I guess the theme of all of this is just this entire season and everyone involved with the Lakers for the most part, except really the young core, which LeBron James has been overly critical, I think, of for most of this season. Everyone else is to blame. They're all at fault for this. There's different levels of degree of who's to blame. Again, I think it's front office. LeBron James, then injuries, and then the coaching staff. You can throw the veteran players in there too. you got to assess some blame to them, give some blame to JaVale McGee, Lance Stevenson, Rajon Rondo gets a lot of blame for his lack of interest for the majority of this year. Obviously, he was injured as well. He's only played 23, 24 games, but when he's been on the court, he hasn't really cared too much either. So, a lot of injury to go around. That does it for episode 47 of NBA Unwrapped. I'm Corbin Weinerman. Again, Perry and Christian couldn't make this podcast. They'll be back on with me next podcast. Thank you guys for sticking out this whole podcast with me. I had a lot of stuff I wanted to talk about. It's nice for once to be able to give your whole opinions and uh, not have to worry about Perry telling me how I'm mispronouncing someone's name when, in actuality, we know I'm right and you're wrong. I love you, Perry, but you know I'm right. So, yeah, thank you guys for listening. Remember to follow us on Twitter, at NBA Unwrapped. Follow me on Twitter, at Corbin Unwrapped. You can follow Perry on Twitter, at Perry Aston. Follow Christian on Twitter, at McGowan75. Go ahead and listen to us on podcast.com, on the Apple iTunes Podcast Network, Or on the Pulse Podcast app. And lastly, just if you haven't checked out our website, unwrappedsports.com, go ahead and check it out. we got some great articles coming in every day from some really good writers. And we're looking for more writers as well. So if you're interested, go ahead and direct message one of us. And we will be happy to at least look to include you if you're a good writer. So that does it for this episode. Thank you guys and hope you guys tune in next time.